Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. is taken from Luke chapter 15 verses 1 to 10. After I finish reading, I will say this is the word to this is the word of the Lord and you respond thanks be to God. Luke 15:1 to 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the Lord of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, isn't he when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your help this morning in understanding what you teach us. Speak to us and help us to listen in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning, we continue with our series called Lost and Found. It's Lost and Found series, and it's in preparation for our mission month in June. Um, so we hope to dedicate the month of June towards reaching out with the gospel, especially to unbelievers. And so in preparation for that, we are looking at the parables of Luke chapter 14 and 15 in this Lost and Found series. Last week, we looked at one of the parables in Luke chapter 14. And today we're moving to two parables in Luke chapter 15. I've got a couple of stories. Listen to this. In May 2007, a British couple went on holiday with their family, a three-year-old girl and two-year-old twins, a boy and a girl. They went along with a host of family friends and their own children. Their destination was a popular resort in the Algarve region of Portugal. On the 3rd of May 2007, at about 8.30 p.m., Kate and Gary, that's the couple's name, left their three-year-old daughter and the twins asleep in a rented ground-floor holiday apartment and joined friends to have a meal in a restaurant about 55 meters away. The parents checked on the children every so often throughout the evening until Madeline's mother, Madeline is the, girl, is the three-year-old girl's name, discovered she was missing at 10 p.m. With the help of others, they searched for Madeline throughout the night, all the while calling out her name. Over the following what will be horrific weeks for the parents, 
The Portuguese police came to believe that Madeline had died in an accident in the apartment and that her parents had covered it up. The parents were given suspect status by the Portuguese police from September 2007 till about July 2008. The parents continued searching and investigations using private detectives until Scotland Yard, that's the UK police, opened its own inquiry in 2011. The senior investigating officer announced that he was treating the disappearance of Madeleine McKine as a criminal act by a stranger, most likely a planned abduction or burglary gone wrong. Kate and Gary continue to search for their daughter till this day in what has become one of the most famous cases of missing children ever in Britain. Madeline was a few days away from her four-year-old birthday when she was abducted. So think about that story and contrast it with this one. A woman walks into a shopping mall with her two kids, Didi, who is three years old, and Diaz, who is about 10 months old. Didi is quite free-spirited. She sees things and she just runs to them. And she decides to make a run for something. And her mom is trying to chase her around the aisles while pushing a buggy with Diaz in it trying to get through the crowds of shoppers and trying to find where Didi has gone to. Suddenly, Didi disappears. Her mom can't see her anywhere around. She takes another look around the store, and of course, she starts to panic. She goes to the customer service area and explains that her daughter has gone missing, and the lady there helps her take a look around again. So she leaves the buggy with DS in it at the customer service area, and then they start to look around together. They look outside, they look elsewhere in the stores and the lavatories and, el and elsewhere. And they can't find her. So they call the shopping center security. The security arrive and send out a message on their radio with her description, and they car carry on searching for Didi. The lady security guard stands outside with mom and says, it's been 10 minutes. Shall we call the police? Mom says, yes. At this point, she's crying. She sees her friend's parents close by and explain to them what has gone on because she's crying too much and she asks them to call her parents to tell them what's going on. Another 10 minutes passes while they're waiting for the police. Then the security lady gets a message that Didi is at a police station. So mom and the security lady walk up to the police station and Didi is sitting in a room with mom's dad who has already arrived at the police station. So mom walks in, sits on the little table opposite Didi, and looks at her and starts to tell her about how she shouldn't run off like that. And all of a sudden, mom bursts into tears. Didi also bursts into tears, and they remain in a hug for about 20 minutes. It turns out that Didi was on the bottom floor of the multi-story car park. She had apparently taken an elevator to the bottom story when an off-duty police officer and his wife found her and took her to the station. All right, two stories that are appear to be quite different in terms of the way they actually ended, right? So contrast these stories in your mind for a little while. I think it's important. If you're a parent here, these stories actually strike home. They mean something to you in a very real sense. They both have a lot of similarities. Well, the, big, the basic similarity there is the fact that they are missing children or lost children, isn't it? But they have two different endings. In one case, people are still searching. In the other case, the girl was found. But there's something even more common to the stories than just the fact that they are lost. The intense searching that is done by the parents. The parents 
obviously value something that makes them go all out. In the case of Madeleine McCann, which is a very popular story, the parents have gone even way beyond any methods that you and I can actually think about. Opening websites, creating you know, search groups, trying to have like a you know, community of missing people that you know, have a similar story as they do. The truth is that as human beings, we search for what we value. Whatever we place value to, if, it's, if we find that it's missing or it is lost, we apply ourselves towards searching for that thing. Today we look at two parables in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 15. These two parables are actually a block of three parables, all talking about the same thing. Whilst we'll talk about the lost sheep and the lost coin, and then in the third parable, the lost son, these parables speak perhaps more about a seeking God than anything else, a God that is searching. Last week, I said that my outline was going to be traditional. Today, it's going to be slightly unconventional. But it's still going to be three points. Unfortunately, I'm stuck with that, uh, with that thing. Even though I, I, I try my best not to make it three points, but somehow I just end up with three points. So it's going to be in three sections. First of all, we'll look at the background or the setting of the parables. And then we'll look at the parables themselves and just try and see, glean something about God from those parables. And then we will look at the parables in the wider context of Luke chapter 14 and 15, and then I will have some concluding remarks. So let's look at the setting. I think verse, verses 1 and 2 are actually very profound, and I think I would like us to take a closer look at verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Do you know that Luke chapter 14 ends with these words? He who has ears, let him hear. And Luke chapter 15 begins with these words. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Just think about that for a moment. In Luke chapter 14, what we actually have is a long discourse of Jesus Christ sitting in somebody's house that is probably a Pharisee, right? Because he was invited for a meal. And he challenges them on some of their thoughts. I dare say perhaps they didn't really get the thrust of what he was challenging them on, at least from the kind of things that they said again in Luke chapter 15. Maybe they didn't really get the messages of the self-seeking nature he was trying to draw their attention to. But then he ends with the words, he who has ears, let him hear. And then in chapter 15, it says that the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Jesus lived his life pretty much always against the flow of tradition. One of the ways he did this was with the company he was often seen to keep. Now, I want you to understand something about this phrase. It's something you are going to see throughout the New Testament, especially throughout the Gospels. Tax collectors and sinners. It was like... Um, I don't, know, I don't know, I'm trying to relate to something here. It's almost, and I don't mean this in any sort of negative way, it's, there's a connotation that we have here about politicians in Nigeria, I don't mean politicians generally, that almost kind of gives you a negative drive, right? Almost as if, if you say politician, somebody just thinks negative about them automatically, right? Even though that's not really the case, politician is not a negative word, right? It's the same way that tax collector is not like F I, uh, uh, LIRS, 
which in itself is not a negative entity. In fact, it's, I dare say it's a very good entity. I think I, I support Lagos State's internal revenue service or the federal uh, uh, revenue service as well. They of themselves are not negative entities. Their, their duty is to ensure that people that live in a particular area actually pay tax, pay the right tax that they're supposed to pay, so that the monies that they collect will actually be used for what they're supposed to be used for. So when you hear tax collector, that is not the non-negative term that comes to mind, especially in the setting of the Jews, right? Or in, or in, in, in the setting that Jesus Christ found himself in. Tax collector was a negative term. If you wanted to insult somebody, you, you call the person a tax collector. That's exactly what it, what it was. The reason for this was very simple. Tax gatherers were very much unlike what they were meant to be doing. The problem with them was that they were very disloyal to Israel. So they were Jews. They were basically Jews, but they were working for the Roman government. But they worked on a commission basis, not the kind of commission that you and I know where you do something and, so, and money is given to you. They worked on the basis of, say, the Roman government will give them a target. 100,000 naira is what you must bring to me. However, they got the 100,000 naira, it was up to them. So they went, they could gather 1.5 million, right? All they had to do was re remit 100,000 naira, and, and the rest was kept for themselves. And they had um, um, authority, so they could use violence as well. And they did use violence. So they were very dishonest people, and they were very disloyal to Israel. They were very disloyal to Jews. You know, being Jews and working at the behest of the Roman government, but then taking advantage of that and trying to plunder things for themselves. So it was a term that was used to insult somebody. If, if, if they said you're a tax collector, basically they were just telling you you're a terrible person. In fact, no synagogues will receive their offering. That's another big thing about it. There were people clearly, clearly, as Jesus Christ recognized, in need of redemption. On the other hand, sinners were a wide group of people. Sinners could actually refer to people that were just irreligious, people who refused to actually follow the laid down things that the Pharisees and teachers of the law had actually laid over throughout the years. So, for instance, things like observing um, the law or elements of the law, Sabbath day, sacrifices, and things like that, people who missed that on a regular basis were considered to be sinners. Yet, you still had a group of people within sinners that were basically immoral people. If you look in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus was talking and he says that where the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did not believe, the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed. So you see, prostitutes was another group of what you would have called sinners. Another example would be people with certain diseases or disabilities that many would take as a sign that they had committed some great sin. In John chapter 9, remember when Jesus was walking along with his disciples and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the connotation there or the idea there was that if you had some sort of terrible disease, you were a sinner. Something about something in, in your life that you had done or some things you carried on doing was is a, is a, is the, the affliction you have is as a result of, of that. So tax collectors and sinners, as throughout, the, throughout the Gospels, you find them you know, in that sort of pair, tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes, because it was a term that was used for people who were basically the rejected of the society. The Jews did not pay them any, any attention. The Jews didn't want to have anything to do with them. Now, these were the sort of people that verse 1 tells us wanted to be around Jesus. Here was someone, a rabbi, who nobody could really lay any blame to. 
And it's evident that they couldn't really lay any blame to Jesus' character. That is why the only thing they found to say about Jesus was, why do you associate with people who have bad characters? Not, why do you have a bad character? And Jesus was here, not behaving like the regular Pharisees or teachers of the law, but he was dining with them. He was eating with them, and he allowed them to draw near. But there was something about Jesus that drew these people to them. They would never have had that sort of ease to go to any other teacher of the law. Am I right? There was something different about Jesus that drew them to Jesus. The Pharisees see this, and in response to it in verse 2, they say, why does this man associate himself with sinners? This man eats, sits and eats with tax collectors and sinners. Almost like, can you imagine that? But don't hold it too much against the Pharisees for now, right? Because even in our own society, we have that sort of notion, isn't it? Bad company, what? Corrupts good manners. The idea is, you know, if you have, if you have young children, you're always watching the friends that they, that they keep. You know, you just want, who is that boy that I've seen, always seen you around? You know, maybe you're seeing somebody that is sagging or whatever. You don't want your own child to follow that, toe that line. And you're like, oh, no, 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 no. Please keep away from them. The tendency is for us to draw ourselves away from them. So they basically believe, the Pharisees, that people like themselves were not supposed to associate with the godless. Now, don't get me wrong. They will, very, they will much readily tell these tax collectors and sinners what they had to do to become righteous. They will tell them, oh, if somebody was afflicted with something, go and wash yourself in the pool of whatever, right? They will very willingly tell them all those kinds of things. But to actually have any sort of thing to do with them was almost impossible. Jesus Christ said in Luke chapter 7, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Yes, Jesus had a different mission, and so he acted differently. He says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke chapter 19 verse 10. So yes, he ate with them. But there was a main reason why he did that. So in response to this thing that the Pharisees say, Jesus Christ decides to tell them three parables. All three parables actually make the same major point. But there are lots of other things there that if we open them up, will be very revealing. Today we're going to look at the first two, the, the, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. So let's look at the parable. So that's the first in terms of the background. Let's look at the parables themselves. Both of these parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, make the same point. They begin on the same note of loss. Somebody loses a sheep and somebody loses a coin. So the search for one sheep out of 100 shows that there is a particular care that the shepherd actually gives to a sheep. You have a 100 sheep in your fold. By the way, notice something as well. We're talking about three parables in a block. There is a progression Actually, there's, there's, the, the progression is actually along several themes. In, one, in the first, you have 100 sheep, one is lost. In the second, you will see 10 coins, one is lost. And in the parable, which we're not going to look at today, you see two sons, and one of them is lost. There is a progression with the numbers, but there is also a progression with the personalities, almost how personal these things are. With a sheep, there is a different value that a shepherd has for sheep than a woman has for the coins that she has than the father 
has for his own children. But the fact that the shepherd has 100 sheep and he loses one of them. I mean, I have a friend that owns, uh, that has a, a poultry, a large poultry by all means. Whenever he gets the, they buy day-old chicks, right? Whenever he buys these day-old chicks, so he goes through all this trouble of getting uh, vets to actually inject them with the right, um, um, whatever they call them, so that they are the vaccinations or whatever, so that they don't, they don't because at, at that age, they are very vulnerable. They can catch any illnesses and die. But whether you inject all of them properly or you do all kinds of things, some of them still die. There's nothing you can do about it. It's almost as if, you know, if he gets, so basically how they, how they record success is on a percentage basis. If he has 80-something percent, of, people, of, of the old chicks that survive, the guy is happy. He just, you know. But just in this case, the guy has 99% left, 99 out of 100, but yet he doesn't stop there. He actually goes out to look for that one sheep. It, it shows a kind of care that only a shepherd can have for sheep. Picture the shepherd upon finding the sheep and the care that he demonstrates as he checks it and he carries it back home on his shoulders, as the parable tells us. It is more than just a piece of livestock. So Jesus is talking to them about this parable, and he begins by saying, suppose one of you, one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. I dare say that it was, it was perhaps very difficult for the Pharisees to actually see themselves as shepherds. For them, it was a case of, what is this man talking about? We are talking about the fact that you're fraternizing with tax collectors and sinners and you're talking about a shepherd. We are, we are never, we are, we've never been shepherds before and we are not ever going to be shepherds. So chances are that the Pharisees never liking themselves to shepherds. They could imagine a shepherd losing a sheep as Jesus told the story, but they couldn't cast their minds back to Ezekiel 34. And I want to read some, some parts of that Ezekiel 34 to you. It's a chapter that I would recommend that we take a look at because it's quite important. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have, strengthened, you have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths, and it will no longer be food for them. Verse 11. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. Verse 23. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. 
I doubt that the Pharisees actually cast their minds back to this scripture. Because if they had, they would have realized that this parable also kind of indicated to them what Jesus Christ was saying. Right in their very midst, the prophecy that Ezekiel prophesied here was actually being fulfilled. The shepherd that God promised to send to look after his flock, to do all the things that God said he wanted to do to his flock, to look, look for them, to find them, to rescue them from danger, and to bring them into the promised land. Jesus Christ was fulfilling it right in their midst. So yes, Jesus Christ had a different mission, and his mission was to be the one great shepherd. The thrust of this passage in Ezekiel 34 is clear. The shepherds of Israel have not taken care of the flock, so God, so God says, I will do it. How does God do it? David is used as a metaphor for Jesus, or as a type of Jesus. Because at this point, when the, when the, when the prophecy was being, was, was being written, David had died 600 years ago. So it was clearly not King David that he was talking about. He was talking about a true son of David, Jesus Christ. So back to the parable. The shepherd, upon finding the lost sheep, gathers his fellow shepherds and says, come and celebrate with me. The fellow shepherds know what the value of that thing the man has found, or that shepherd has found is. And so they are able to, you know, empathize or sympathize with him, and they are able to go and rejoice with him because they too understand the value and the care that the shepherd has for his flock. Cast your mind back to the stories that we read at the beginning. This is what Jesus says in the parable. After he talks about people rejoicing, and he says, I tell you in verse 7, that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Notice that in verse 7, the sinner does something. We talk about lost and found in a sense as though, in a sense, you can... You can be under some sort of illusion that as God is actually doing the searching and is finding, that there is nothing that is required of that which is being found. But here, he make, Jesus Christ makes that, makes that quite clear. The sinner does something. He repents. Repentance and belief are actions that are embroiled in the seeking and finding. God initiates by coming to us with the person and the work of the Son, Jesus Christ, and the finding is complete when the sinner actually repents and puts, puts his faith in Jesus Christ. It is important for us to have that at the back of our minds because the rejoicing that is done in heaven is done when a sinner actually repents. We'll say more about the 99 later on. Let's look at the parable of the lost coin. In this parable, the same point is being made. The same kind of scenario is there. Something is lost Searching and something is found, rejoicing afterwards. But there is a bit of a different twist to it. Like I said before, there is a bit of a progression. So in the case of a, a shepherd, he has a hundred sheep. There is some impersonality with sheep. I mean, no matter how much we talk about shepherds and how much they care for sheep, they are sheep. They are still livestock. He cares for them. He has value for them. Now, in the case of this woman, now it's not clear what these ten coins actually signify. Some people will tell you that they actually have something to do with wages. And some, other, um, um, and some other people will tell you, which this is what I think is probably more likely, is that the 10 coins actually make up um, some sort of a token that married, married, newly married women have. Some, very much like what we, call, what we have as wedding rings now. And having 10 on the band actually mean, makes it complete. So if you lose one, 
it means that you know you need to find the remaining. You need to, you need to make it up. It was basically there was something more personal. Basically, the, the point here is that there was something more personal about these ten coins to the woman than sheep were to um, a shepherd. And so that's why when she loses one, she goes through all the trouble of finding it. Look at the reflection in this second parable of the lost coin in terms of how the woman actually searches. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Again, it, it, it denotes to us a level of value that is placed on that item and what is done as a result of that value. But look at the state of the coin that is there. On the one hand, we've, we've talked about the fact that the sheep that is lost is a sinner that actually needs to do some repenting. And without the repenting and the, rec and the recovery back to Jesus Christ, that thing is actually not found. But at the same time, we can talk about a helplessness, a helpless state of the coin that is lost or the sheep that is lost. In the real sense of it, a coin that is lost is in a place somewhere. You, know, you don't know. Imagine you lose a coin, right? When coins were something, right? When I was in secondary school, my daily um, money that was given for my lunch or whatever was three naira. I remember then we still had naira in coins, right? And when they gave me my three naira, I had to find a pocket in my uniform that would actually hold that three naira and make sure that it doesn't fall. Because I, I didn't used to understand how every time I lost either the whole three naira or at least one naira out of the three naira. Either I don't know whether holes were in my pocket or maybe running or whatever, the, the coins will just fly out. So I had to make sure that. And once, if you're in school and you lose a coin, you're not, there's no point in searching for it. It's not, it's not the type of one that this woman is searching for here. If the one naira has gone, the one naira has gone. Don't, don't even bother. You know? So every time I always wanted to find a very good way to be able to put it in, uh, in a pocket that wouldn't. I, I remember by the time I got to SS2 or SS3, uh, by that time, you know, it, wasn't, it was no longer 3 naira. But anyway, I had the tailor sew a smaller pocket for me that would be able to take coins. You know, just so that if I slip it in there, I'm sure it never falls out. But the point is that when a coin, has, is that when a, when a coin like that is lost and you don't know where the coin is, the value of that coin is not really seen until you find that coin. That coin is somewhere in a dark corner somewhere. It's missing. It's probably, there is no, that coin is basically helpless on its own. It is only after I find that coin that I can do something with it. It is useless until I find it. So there is a helpless state that the lost actually find themselves in that make them impossible for them to actually come out or actually have any value unless that value is given to them by the person who actually searches and finds them. So the point I'm trying to make here is that for people who are lost and for people who need to repent, their value is actually given to them or is actually found and the person who actually saves them, and that is Jesus Christ. So the idea that God actually seeks out sinners, by the way, at that time, this, this idea was a bit of a huge one. It was, bit, it was a bit revolutionary. God's seeking out sinners, because their understanding was, you stay away from those who are godless. You stay away from those who are sinners. So the natural feeling is that God abhors sinners and, and automatically casts them away. That is what the Pharisees believed. After all, look at the parable of the publican and the tax collector. On the one hand, you have somebody saying, oh, I've, I've, look at what I've done, but I am not like this person. And this person is talking to God. He's basically talking to God. I am not like this tax collector. Look at all the things I do every day. That was, 
I dare say, genuine prayer. The man was actually praying to God and saying, look at me, I fast every day, I do all these things, as a way to get favor from God. And the contrast was against a tax collector that, as we've already itemized, was not the best of people. So his, his idea was, God, you don't have anything to do with that guy. You know, this is the person that you should be dealing with. So then this thing about Jesus Christ coming with this idea of God himself seeking out people who are, who are lost was a bit huge. But here's the point. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter how terrible you think you are. When you turn to Christ, there is great rejoicing in heaven. And as people of God, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you ought to have that same joy. So that's the parables itself. Third section, let's look at the wider context of Luke chapter 14 and 15. Now, last week we looked at 14 and we looked at just one parable in Luke chapter 14, but there was a lot of other stuff we tried to talk about, right? We talked about the fact that Jesus Christ was in the house of a Pharisee, right? He was there and they made some, you know, they basically tried to set him up by bringing a man with dropsy in there. And Jesus Christ asked them, is it the value of this man? Is the value of this man who is ill more, less important to you than observing the Sabbath day? They didn't answer him. So Jesus Christ healed the man with, with dropsy. And then Jesus Christ went into a, a litany of talking to them about self, their self-seeking behavior. Don't invite people that you know will only be able to invite you back. When you have a, a meal, try and invite people who are poor, who are lame, who are crippled. And he continues to talk to them about different things. And he says, when you find yourself in a banquet, humble yourself. Don't go and take a high position, a place where somebody will see you and say, come down from that place. It's not meant for you, right? And then he carries on into this parable of the great banquet where he says that somebody, some, a great man had invited people for a feast. They didn't want to come. So he left them alone and he went and invited other people, supposedly dejected or rejected people in the society. And then he carries on talking about other things in this Luke chapter 14 until he gets to the point where he says that salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then we get into Luke 15 where he talks about losing a sheep or losing a coin. So what are we getting from this progression? Jesus is showing us the Father's heart for everyone. There is no one who is exempt from this, self, from this seeking nature that God has. It is evident from the way he progresses it that there is a way in which we can, at least with the Pharisees, they can look at people who are in a particular state and think that these people are exempt from, what God, from God's mercy and from the way God is actually seeking to save people. But Jesus Christ is trying to establish the fact in the, in the Gospel of Luke that the way, what God wants to do when God wants to fill his house, when God wants people to come into his banquet and to enjoy his food, that there is no race, there is no type of person that is exempt from it. It is for everyone. And God does want to fill this house. He wants to fill this house with people that he values. And that is why he goes through the trouble of seeking these lost people and bringing them into the kingdom. And he does it through a very remarkable way, isn't it? Through sending Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus is showing us the Father's heart for everyone and his desire to see his house filled. So let me give some concluding remarks that would sort of tie all these things together. Number one, the main thrust of Jesus telling them these parables was to portray to the Pharisees that what they had perceived to be of less importance was actually of great significance. 
not just to Jesus, but also in heaven. So if you look at the whole thing of uh, the, the whole context in Luke 14 and 15, one, the healing of the man with dropsy versus the observance of the Sabbath day. So they thought the observance of the Sabbath day was more important than the healing of the man with dropsy. Two, those who humble themselves versus those who exalt themselves. Three, the poor, crippled, lame, and blind versus the rich friends and the relatives. The tax collectors and sinners versus the Pharisees and teachers of the law. The one sheep versus the 99. The one coin versus the remaining nine. The lost son versus the son who remained. The point was, you think these don't matter, but I tell you there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over those who don't need to. So that was the main thrust of it. But that was not the only point. You see, Jesus' audience was not just the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. There were people who had gathered there to do what? To hear him. And these were the tax collectors and sinners. So in the midst of his telling these parables, they are listening to him as well. So in, on the one hand, he's rebuking the Pharisees and he's telling them that this way, the way you consider things that are less important, heaven considers them to be more important. It is also an invitation to those who are lost, the sinners and the tax collectors, and he's asking them, heaven really values you coming to the fold. Jesus is always recovering those who were lost, and God wants his eternal house to be filled. Notice I, say, I didn't say Jesus was always recovering those who are lost. I said Jesus is, is always recovering those who are lost. Number two, let me say something here about the remaining 99 or the remaining nine. There is a tendency for us to overthink these parables and pit the repentance of one over the worship of others who do not need to repent and think that one is more important in that sort of sense than the other. Well, don't think like that because in John chapter 4, verse 23, it says that the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The very meaning or goal of evangelism is that God is seeking worshippers. So the remaining 99, as the parable will connote, that remain and are actually worshipping is the goal for the reason why those remaining 99 would actually go out and look for those who are, who are lost. The lost sheep is lost because he worships something more than God. That's the reason why he's lost. So worship is at the center of it all. The reason God rejoices so much over the winning of the lost is not because God doesn't have tremendous delight in worship, but because he delights most in the worship of the whole family. I tell you, we are never to be content with worship if we don't have the same mind of Christ to recover those who are lost to worship with us. Number three, Jesus knows that his commission is to reconcile lost men back to Christ. And that is what he has been doing even after his resurrection and his ascension. The primary way Jesus continues this search and rescue mission is through his body. You see, the body of Christ is not just a metaphor used to signify unity amongst believers. It is also a metaphor used to show that we are actually God's arm in this world. We're actually the people that do his work in this world. He is the head and we are the body and we're the ones that actually do what he wants us to do. Remember I said he's actually still actively recovering people who are lost. And he does that primarily through you and I. We have been given help by the person of the Holy Spirit. 
and we are enabled to continue to seek out those who are lost. So I tell you, if you're seated here today and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, we need to continue this work of Jesus. Number four, this task of recovering the lost should have more emphasis on the lost at the risk of our discomfort. Now, this point cannot be overemphasized. It is clear in the parables that the shepherd is not, thinking of, is not necessarily thinking about his safety when he goes to find his sheep. The woman is not really thinking about, if the woman was really thinking about her comfort, she could have made up a lie to just say, oh, I lost one coin, you know, or, or sorry, um, um, I actually, or try, try to find a way to just make the, nine, the remaining nine coins work for her. At the, at the expense of their own discomfort, these people actually go out and look for something. What drives the shepherd is the care that he has for the sheep, not necessarily his comfort. The value the woman places on the coin is clearly more than the value she places on her comfort. You see, apart from the fear that we have in terms of talking about the gospel to people, sometimes we can't just be bothered. And that's the truth. Sometimes we just, you know what, I'm just not, I'm not ready for this. I mean, we don't say it out, but it's sometimes the way, they, at least the way I feel sometimes. The gospel that makes us Christ followers calls us to lead selfless lives because the person that we are called to follow led a selfless life. Thinking more about others than ourselves, we need to gain that passion that results in rejoicing when a lost person is found. You see, when we gain that level where we are actually feeling rejoiced, we are actually rejoicing or feeling joy at the fact that a lost person is found, it is what will make us go out without necessarily thinking about our comfort. Everyone in this room has some sort of relationship with a non-believer. I'm not particular about the depth of that relationship. It doesn't matter whether this person is your bosom friend or whether the person is just an acquaintance. The point is that you are in a position, no matter how big or small, for that person to hear you say something, right? Let us use this as a launching pad. Yes, it's very, very hard. It's very difficult. And I'm, I'm not saying it, I'm saying it from my own experience as well. It's hard sometimes to just, given the context here in Lagos or anywhere else in the office or whatever you want to look at it, to actually broach the subject of the gospel. But let's use this as a launching pad. There is a there is, apart from the joy that you have in terms of understanding the gospel, apart from the joy that you have in terms of the fact that you have received this gospel and it is something that is, that is valuable to you, and as such you will want to share it with other people, let us think about the joy that we ought to have, that heaven does have, that the angels actually have as a result of somebody who repents and turns himself to Christ. And let that be a motivator. Let's find a way to invite them. It could be inviting them to your house. It could be inviting them to our mission month activities next month, next, um, next month in June. And by the way, your greatest means of recovering those who are lost will remain your personal witness to the truth and greatness of Jesus and how he meets your needs. And if you can't talk to them, if you really, really can't talk to them, pray for them. We can never pray enough for the recovery of those who are lost. Today is our communion service and 
Today is our communion service, and in our communion service, we actually try to remember Jesus Christ. As we remember what Jesus Christ has done, let us try to remember what Jesus Christ is doing. His commission to save those who are lost has not ended because the kingdom of heaven has not come yet. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your reminders such as this. Reminding us of what Jesus Christ has done and what he's still doing. We thank you for the ways in which we would have received this from you. Either it be by rebuke or it be by encouragement to actually be your light in this world your admonition to be salt so that we are still relevant. We ask you, O oh Lord, to help us. Help us to be the arms and the legs and the body of Christ in reaching out to the lost. Let us have the same passion, O oh God, that you have for recovering those who are lost. And if there's anyone here, O oh Lord, who is yet to grasp onto this great news about what Jesus Christ has done. Father, we pray you arrest their hearts. Bring us all, O oh Lord, into true worshippers of you in spirit and truth. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church Love Jesus Love people, love Lagos.